Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Have any of you here ever been involved with building a house, like a physical home? Maybe it was your home. Maybe you bought a plot of land. Anybody here built a house or renovated a house or built on? All right, you'll know it takes a special anointing, a special kind of willpower, a special level of grit to build a house from scratch, right? To, to take what is just a, a vision, maybe written down on a piece of paper, maybe an architect drew some drawings, and to take that drawing and to bring it to fruition so that you actually live inside of the thing that previously you have only dreamed about, you know that it takes a special kind of special to be able to do that. I remember when I was working for a church as a youth pastor and my office, um, kind of the corner of my office, had these one-way windows so I could see out, but you couldn't see in from the, from the outside. And they were building a youth hall at the time. Uh, the youth had grown and they decided to build this youth hall. And, and I remember watching through my office window a contractor outside on the phone. But I, was, I marveled at his intensity because whoever he was speaking to on the other end of that phone was being shouted at for about 30 minutes plus, Right? And I was like, how does this guy, what did he have for breakfast? How does he maintain this level of anger and intensity? He's like veins popping in his neck with some poor subcontractor on the other end. And I was like, that, you know, you got to, you want to be a contractor. You got to be able, do not become a contractor if you're not willing to have difficult conversations, right? Or a pastor for that matter. And, um, and, and so I kind of at one point, I was leaving the office and I walked outside and he had just finished the call. And he had gone from like vein popping intensity, dropped the phone, looked at me and said, good morning, sir. You know, just like, just switched it on. I realized, man, this is a special breed. When you're gonna, when you're gonna build stuff, you're gonna pioneer, you're gonna do big things, you're gonna, you're gonna bring visions to fruition. Yeah, you need to have a certain tenacity about you. You need to have some fight in you. And, um, and pioneers are like this. Pioneers create where others just sit by. Pioneers bring about life where others see death. Pioneers give birth where others remain barren. Pioneers see doors where others see dead ends. Pioneers hold out for hope. They, they, they believe in that vision. They walk by faith and they put it all on the line to pursue that, to see it come to fruition. So, so you know, it, it's hard for me to even see the, the building that we're in right now or the church that we're in right now because I'm already living in the next one or the next phase or the next level. And, I, and sometimes I feel the tension between where we are and where we want to be, where we feel God has called us to be. Have you ever lived in that tension? That's a difficult tension. And what gets you through is faith and persistence. Passion brings you through as we trust in God. A pioneer is defined as a person who prepares the way for others to follow. Prepares the way for others to follow. It's literally laying the bricks of faith that others will walk on in the future. And we get to be those pioneers. Here at Anchor Church, we have no idea how many countless people will come to know Jesus 
because of this group of pioneers right now. Because of a group of people that said, we're going to put our hands up, whether it's a small task or a, small, or a big task, we're going to be involved because ultimately we know that others will be blessed if we're faithful today. We have no idea how many people will be blessed on the other side of our obedience. What an incredible thing. They say you can, you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but not the number, number of apples in the seed. No idea how many trees and how many more apples and how many more seeds will be produced if a small group of people are willing to lay their lives down. Amazing. Isaiah 43 verse 19, God says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. I'm doing it. Now it springs forth and God asks us, do you perceive it? Are you able to see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God does something in miraculous ways that produces results we couldn't even have dreamed of. Produces something amazing. And by the way, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of this message is The Threshing Floor. We're going to look at the threshing floor as the foundation on which the temple was built and the significance of that. But God wants to move in our city. He wants to do a new thing. And so he asks us this morning, Anchor Church, can you perceive it? Do you have the faith to see it? Do you have the heart to know it? This kind of perception has always been interesting to me. And the best way I can describe it is when we see with our eyes and the eyes of our heart simultaneously. It's two kinds of vision that we get to have. And the reason why so many people have such small vision for their lives is because they only have one kind of vision. And that's the physical vision, only seeing with their eyes. But when Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus 1 verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. May the eyes of your heart, may your spirit begin to see so that you can know what God has called you to, how hopeful it is. How powerful is that? So are we just blindly going through the motions, that the, the steps that this world puts before us, saying if you want to have a successful life, if you want to have a fulfilled life, go step A, step B, step C, you know, just go through these steps and, and then hopefully you'll end up not too bad in the end. Is that what we've put our faith in in life or do we see with the eyes of our heart? Paul, standing in the pantheon before King Agrippa, said this in Acts 26, 19. He says, therefore... O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I had a vision from heaven for my life, and I was obedient to it. Which also tells us that we could have visions from heaven for our lives and be disobedient to it. We can, we can sidestep it. We can ignore it. We can, it doesn't mean that God's vision he ever takes it away from you or away from your life, but we could, we could walk in ignorance regarding it. There is a vision from heaven for your life. Every single person in this place, God has a vision for you and for his church, including Anchor Church. Anchor Church was not determined in my heart or Will's heart or the heart of our leaders. Anchor Church was determined in the heart of God. We're just stepping into what he determined so that when we stand 
at the end of our time on this earth, we can look back and say, therefore, we were not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And hot for the house is a time that we ask ourselves, what is that vision? We know that we, we have a strategy, we have a plan, we, we do our best to, to do what we feel is the best way to go about executing this vision. But ultimately, it's not our vision. It's the vision in God's heart. God, God's vision has a church, and we're a part of that. We're His subcontractors, His co-workers, each one bringing their talent, the grace of God on their lives, their resources, whatever, whatever God has given you. And together, by faith, we pursue the purpose of God. It's not just an organization. It's a living thing that God has given us to be a part of. But here's the thing. We, we like to be real here at Anchor Church most of the time. And here's the thing. You cannot build what you hate. You will not build what you hate. You will build with one hand and break down with the other. It's like watching my kids build Lego. You know, it's, it's, it's building and it's construction and deconstruction at the same time, constantly. And people build the church that way. They, 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 they have an inner disdain for what the church is and then are involved in it at the same time. It's double-mindedness. And double-mindedness doesn't yield the results that God has for our lives. Having two visions, your own vision for what you think your life is about and, and you know, another vision at the, simultaneously in regards to the church is the definition of division, division, two visions. Do you have division in your own heart about what God has called you to or do you have a singular vision? Because when Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, the Bible says he set his face like flint. I'm going in one direction, the direction that God has for my life. And I believe that's the way that God wants us to live our lives. The sad thing is, is that when we lose our vision for the church, and, and I have had so many conversations with people about this, and I understand that people have been hurt by leaders that haven't uh, been faithful to what God called them to or because of insignificant, or, uh, sorry, insecurities within themselves have led poorly, have made mistakes. That's, that's going to happen. When you put a bunch of imperfect people together, there's going to be mistakes and people are going to be hurt. And so that's going to happen. I know that people have, have gotten into unbiblical forms of church and leadership that has been manipulative and hurtful. And if you read the book of Revelation 2 and 3, you will see that Jesus is quite serious about that. But we cannot allow the faults of others to determine the faithfulness of our hearts. Because you're going to answer for your faithfulness and they'll answer for theirs. And I have found, and I've worked for several churches, that even the leaders that I thought weren't going about things the right way, God still uses. And I wonder at that sometimes and I'm thinking, wow. God, you know, so much that I know about that's wrong or that I feel is wrong. But yet, people are getting saved. People are getting healed. You know, and, and sometimes we just need to leave that to God. But what about us? You know, like Jesus said, said to Peter, like, you know, what is it to you? You follow me. 
Don't worry about what's happening with, with this person or the next. You just follow me. So the question is not what have other churches done and how do you feel about the institution of church and how's the organization muddied the water and how is this right and that wrong and what have people done with money that's, that's, that's obviously faithful, faith, faithlessness and, and, and bad stewardship and all of that stuff. And we know all of that stuff is true. It, it hurts us and angers us as well. But you, you follow me. That's the command of Jesus. And we need to listen to that. The problem is when we lose our love for what God is building, we simultaneously lose our, our heart for the lost. When you lose the vision and the mission of the church and disconnect, like so many Christians have told me, I just don't want to join a church right now. I just want to be with myself and, and God and just, just kind of worship in my own room and just spend time with God by myself. Okay, how are you reaching the lost? How are you reaching the lost? How are you encouraging other believers? I'm telling you now, Facebook's not gonna, I would love, the, the Facebook evangelists, it's awesome that you're sharing, it's awesome that you're reaching out on social media, people are there and we should do it, but, but I would like to see a report. How many people have given their lives to Jesus, turned everything around, and decided to walk a different path because of a post you made on Facebook? I just want to see the actual numbers because I, we want to do what's effective, right? And so not that we're against doing that, but we believe that, in fact, the studies have shown that the most effective form of evangelism on planet earth is church planting. When there's a life-giving community that rises up in a city, it draws people and those people end up giving their lives to Jesus. It's powerful. Man, I just feel like preaching this morning. I'm going to try and speed up a little bit here. After Peter denied Jesus and gone back to fishing for fish instead of fishing for men, as he was called to be, Jesus obviously was resurrected from the dead, and he goes to find Peter. And it's, for me, always been one of the most beautiful moments in Scripture where Peter's back on his boat. He's fishing. He's like, I'm disqualified. I denied Jesus three times as he predicted I would do. And so I'm disqualified. I'm just going to go back to my, my day job. And, um, and, and he hasn't seen Jesus. Jesus was crucified, and that's the last he saw. And now he's on the boat. And all of a sudden, while on the boat, he looks out, and he sees Jesus on the shore. And Peter's heart, you know, that, that chance to to make right or to, to reconnect. I can just imagine how his heart must have burst out of his chest in that moment. And in one of the most beautiful moments in Scripture, Peter doesn't wait, can't wait for the boat to get to Jesus. He throws off his outer cloak and dives in. And you know, if you had an outer cloak, it means you had an inner cloak. Have you ever tried swimming in a cloak? <laughs> in an ocean? He can't wait. He, got, he needs to get to Jesus. I love that, you know, he knew God's heart for him in such a way that even when he failed, he swam out to meet Jesus there. And Jesus has, has made a little fire on the beach there. And, and, um, and, and he says, hey, bring some of those fish. Clearly, by the time Peter got there, the boat is almost kind of at the same time because it's like, hey, 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 Peter. Hey, guys, bring some fish, you know. Um, and, so, and so they have this moment. And Jesus creates a restoration moment here for for. Um, for Peter. And he, the thing is, is that he brings Peter back into fellowship with him. But for so many Christians, 
That's where we stop. Okay, I'm good with Jesus. Okay, that's good. I'm done now. That's all, that, that's all there is to it. I just need to be good with Jesus. Do I have fellowship with Jesus? Yes. Well, then I don't need anything else. I don't need a community. I don't need a church. I don't need a, a community group or a team or anything. I just need to be fellowship with Jesus. But look at what Jesus says to Peter. He doesn't stop there. In John 21 verse 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, okay, feed my lambs. You love me? Get involved. Get stuck in. Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, okay, tend my sheep. Be involved in ministry. Lead the church. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. I think it reminded Peter of the three denials, Jesus bringing the three questions, do you love me? Every time Jesus used the word love there, he used the word agape. Do you love me unconditionally, Peter? You trust in me unconditionally. And Peter seems to have is still dealing with the effects of his previous failure because every time he replies, he says, yes, Lord, I phileo you, which is a brotherly kind of love, not an unconditional God kind of love. He's like, I, I want, I, yeah, yeah, I want, I'm getting there, Jesus. He's not as boastful as he was before where he said, I'll die, but I'll never deny you. But Jesus says, okay, if you love me, Peter says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. Do you see how loving Jesus is connected with your ministry? If you love, then feed the sheep. And so many times it can be an indicator of where we stand in our relationship with Jesus. Because people that love Jesus love to serve the church. It's just like that. When people aren't serving or aren't involved or aren't uh, uh, passionate about what God is doing here or anywhere else, we worry not about their commitment, their discipline. Their, we, we wonder, how is their relationship with Jesus? Because it's an, it, it's an, it flows out from that place. And so, Jesus says, coming back into fellowship with him means that you'll get stuck in to be building what he is building. Whose sheep are they? It's Jesus' sheep. He died for those people. He died for the people of this city. And he asks us to care about the people of this city the way that he cares about the people of this city. Jesus has chosen to work through us. And so we want to be passionate about what God has called us to be passionate about. We want to care and develop a heart for the lost. How's your heart for the lost this morning? So I'm asking God to help all of us to have a renewed vision for what the church is about. So we can stop being caught up with models and methods and you know, and there needs to be models and, and methods are helpful, but, but that we can stop walking into those things and begin to see beyond them with the eyes of our heart. So we can see the bigger picture and get a renewed sense of awe and respect 
for the church and for what God wants to do through the church so we can be involved, so we can be effective. So I'm always intrigued by how specific God was in the Old Testament when it came to the tabernacle in the wilderness and then later on the temple as well. Have you noticed that God gives measurements, right? He doesn't just go, hey guys, can you just put up a tent? And yeah, make sure that there's some space in there for an altar, you know, or an ark or whatever. And yeah, that'll be good. Maybe put some sheep around there or whatever. You know, God, he's like to the centimeter, to the millimeter. He's like the curtain is not just a curtain. It's a curtain this long. It's a curtain this thick. It's a curtain this color. It's a curtain that will look like this, feel like this. You know, this is how it will be conducted. This is how things will run. God is incredibly specific about every single item. And what we learn about as we go into the New Testament is that these things pointed to the gospel. They all had significance. Can God do anything that's not significant? Can he ask you to do something that isn't significant? Is this a strange thought? Can, can, is it possible for God to act in insignificance? I don't think so. So when he says build the church, and he gives us a pattern, and he gives us the gospel, he, he's quite specific about what we're here to do because it's significant. He points to it. And so going through the Old Testament and the, the, the design of the tabernacle and the temple can often reveal some amazing things about God's heart. When Israel wandered in the wilderness, they were instructed to have the tabernacle. And God even told them where the tabernacle was to be placed and how they would camp around it. And the amazing thing is that the tabernacle was always to be in the center. And all the tribes of Israel would camp around the tabernacle. And so literally, every morning when you came out of your tent, I'm imagining it was a low tent. I don't know how high they were. I assume that if you're carrying it around in the desert, it's got a low door. And so they would come out of the tent. What's the first thing they see? It's the tabernacle. What does that tell them? God's with us. We're God's people. It was an identity-shaping thing that God did. And he showed us that how God wants us to live our lives is that his presence and our worship is the center. It's what we base all of the rest of our living around. And so the church isn't peripheral in your life. It's not meant to be peripheral. It's meant to be central. And when I say the church, again, I'm not talking about the organization, even though that the organization is there to, to support I'm talking about the vision of God for the people of God. It's central. It's what we're a part of. And we structure the rest of our lives around that. We found that in today's day and age, people come to church once a month. If they come twice, they are committed. And I'm sure that's all of you here today. If you come like three or four times a month, you're basically like Jesus. Right? People aren't very committed because they've lost the centrality. They've lost the vision. And that's what we're hoping God will shape in us. And I'm not just talking about attendance. I'm talking about how we structure all of our lives, our finances, our time, everything that we do. Do we have the tabernacle in the center? 
Eventually, Israel make it into the promised land and settle in Jerusalem. And they begin to take pride in this new land that they now have and, and in themselves. And they begin to shift. Now that the tabernacle is not something that they're camping around every day, their hearts begin to shift from the centrality of their worship towards God. And they begin to forget about it. And Satan even tempts, in 1 Chronicles 21, tempts David to number the people. Not that there was anything wrong with counting how many people there were, but the reason why Satan did, did, tempted David in this way was because he wanted to create pride. Oh, look at the great nation that we are. God's like, I don't want you to get, take pride in how many people you have. I want you to take pride in the fact that I'm with you, that I'm your God, that you're my people. David falls for this temptation and, and, and he counts the people and he, he forgets about God and all of a sudden sin begins to wreak havoc in the, amidst the people of Israel and a plague hits the place and, 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 and there's destruction. And, and this is very much what is happening in our world. People have forgotten the centrality of their creator, who God is, what their identity is, what worship is really all about. And they're running after so many other things that is just producing more and more pride and the, the, the absolute plague of sin is destroying our city. And so God says to David, hey, build a house. Build a house. Put it in the center. Let people remember who I am. That's what we're doing, Anchor Church. We are shining a light in the city that reminds people that God has not forgotten them or abandoned them or left them to their own devices, that he longs for them. As they pursue all manner of prideful things, God says, but I am here. I have not left you in the midst of your rebellion. But even when you were yet sinners, I died for you. You can come home. It's an invitation for them to come home. At one point, Israel is taken into captivity, into exile, and they return home after that captivity, and God speaks through the prophet Haggai to the, the, the people of Israel. Listen to this in Haggai 1 verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much. Isn't that the mantra of our world? You looked for much. We looked for much. And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. See, God is rebuking Israel in this moment for a lack of vision. 
a lack of understanding about what the house of God is about. They have set the priorities of their own lives above the priorities of God. And what is the result of that? What is the natural outcome of that? It never fulfills. It's never enough. People that, that feel like they feel most alive when they go have a braai with friends and, 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 and get a little drunk and, and pursue, I don't know what it is, making money, whatever, and then they, they make the money and they have the braais, but no amount of clippies and coke is ever enough. No amount of beers is ever enough. No amount of whiskey is ever enough. No amount of money is ever enough. It's like, it's like I keep eating, but I'm still hungry. I keep drinking, but I cannot have my fill. It doesn't satisfy. I make all the money. I put it in a bag. There's holes in this bag. It blows away. Man, that's accurate. God's like, why? Because you're not building with eternal stones. You're not building something that has eternal worth and value. You keep building things that are frivolous and temporal and will blow away with the wind. As we pursue our own ends, we find that it's never enough. But later on in Matthew 6, 32-33, Jesus says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you? Are you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? or What will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows. God knows what you need. But seek first. The centrality of the tabernacle. Seek first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. So when we seek God first, no matter how much it costs us, we find the rest of the stuff's there anyways. But when we seek those things alone as the main point and purpose of our lives, it leaks. It disappears. It blows away. Now, I'm a passionate kind of person, and if I find something that I love, like I'll put time and effort and energy into it. I often, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, will buy secondhand things, but I don't leave them looking secondhand. I will deconstruct that entire thing and re-sand it and remold it and rework it and whatever, and it'll look brand new. My estimation is always, is this better than it was originally? <laughs> because if you're passionate, you're going to do that. And so you'll be passionate about what you love. And it's, there's nothing wrong with being passionate about cars. My dad was passionate about cars. He'd wake up early every morning. By the time we come out for school, my dad's polishing his car every day. He loved it so much that at one point he had two cars. And my mom's car, his went into the garage. My mom's had to be on the grass, which was interesting in winter when we had to pull over because we had to scrape the frost off the window. But my dad's cars were clean. Because <laughs> he was passionate about those things. There's nothing wrong with being passionate. There is something wrong when your passions begin to override your passion for God's house. Can you build God's house as passionately as you pursue the other things in your life and more so? And so God wants us to experience that fulfillment of trusting in Him, believing in Him, having that bigger vision. Do you love me? Jesus says, then feed my sheep. In 1 Chronicles, we see God then moving on the heart of David to transition his, the worship of Israel from that tabernacle to the temple. Few people, though, know 
how David actually chose the spot where the temple would be built. I don't know if you're aware this morning how David actually picked the plot of land. And as I read this, I just saw there was so much significance in this. In 1 Chronicles 18 verse 21, God responds to David through the prophet Gad. And it says, Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David's going to God saying, there's a plague hitting our world. People, lives are being destroyed. I realize that I've sinned. I realize I need to repent. God, help us, have mercy on us. And so God responds. He says, here's what I want you to do. In order to overcome the plague of sin that is wreaking havoc in the lives of Israel, I want you to go and raise an altar to me on the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. Raise an altar. Whenever I see something like this, again, I know God does everything in significance. And I'll, the first question I ask, why a threshing floor? What is the significance of a threshing floor? What is, what is, who is Onan the Jebusite and why does God get to, why does God choose him? I love the fact that God is the one who picks the place and the people by name. He's one of the original Jebusites that was left over from the time when, when Israel came in and conquered that land. In many ways, insignificant, just on a little threshing floor. It's got his own thing going. And God's like, that person. When God looks at Anchor Church, he doesn't just go, yo, that, that, those people out there in Joburg. No, he goes, at Anchor, by your name. Every individual in this room. He picks the people, he picks the place. So David goes to the threshing floor of Anan, and this is what happens in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 19. It says, So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Anan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And as David came to Anan, Anan looked and saw David, and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Anand, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar for the Lord. Give it to me at its full price. Then the plague may be averted from the people. Then Onan said to David, take it and let my Lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for, the, for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for, for a grain offering. I give it all. So Onan's like, this is for the king. This is for God. This is for an altar. I give everything I have. But King David said to Onan, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David wants to be invested in this. It's funny, this is like two people paying over the bill. You know, when you go out with the friends, like, please, please, let me, let me have it. And then, you know, at this point, when the bill comes, you can look over at friends and be like, oh, are we going to do this? Like, are you ready? You know, I've had friends that, before the bill comes, they go and pay it so that we don't have the awkward argument at the table. But it's the privilege of being able to be the one who blesses. And David's like, no, I want to pay for this. I won't give God an offering that costs me nothing. Oh, Nazareth, no, this is for God. No, take the oxen, take the sleds, the, the, the sleds uh, take everything. You know, take the grain. I'll give it all. So David paid Onan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. 
And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. So real quick, as we finish today, what is the threshing floor? What is the significance? Have you ever heard of a threshing floor? Originally, it was known as a threshing floor. And ultimately, it was just a paved circular area that was often built outdoors on a hill, usually in a space where there would be a gentle breeze blowing. And it would be a circular paved area where the wheat would be brought and then initially would be crushed and trampled on by people's feet in order to separate the chaff or the the hollow wheat from the valuable grain. It was a way of separating out the, the valuable grain from the rest of the harvest. And so there was a thrashing, there was a trotting. Eventually they got smart and they built uh, millstones or, or, or sl- sleds that would be pulled by oxen and these oxen would, would walk around and, and, and just break up and crush all of this, this grain so that the wind, the gentle wind that blew across the threshing, the threshing floor would blow away the chaff, the, 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 the excess that's, that's worthless, the useless straw. And so it's a place of separation. It's a place of crushing. It's a place where there's a crushing that brings about what's valuable. It's a place of refinement, the threshing floor. John the Baptist referred to it when he said in Matthew 3 verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now listen, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Place of separation. You know what the cross presents us with? A yes and a no. We either say yes to the cross or we say no to the cross. And the place of the threshing floor is where that gets done. And so there is a separation between those who surrender their lives to God and receive the fire of the Holy Spirit and those who in choosing to live for themselves instead, rejecting the grace of God, end up living empty lives. And let me tell you, this is Satan's plan for your life. Did you know that as much as God has a plan for your life, Satan has a plan? His plan, where God wants you to be the valuable grain, Satan wants to make you the chaff. He mentioned, uh, we mentioned Peter's denial of Jesus earlier, but look at this. Luke 22, 31 to 33, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. He's asked for you. Why? So that he may sift you as wheat. The same picture. There's Satan's plan. Satan's plan is to, to take you and make your life so hollow, so empty, so worthless in all the little pursuits that you just blow away in the wind. Ineffective. But he says, but I have prayed for you, Jesus. So there's Satan's plan and Jesus' prayer. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Your faith makes the difference. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's what Jesus has for us. What are you supposed to do? Now the band can come up. 
What are you supposed to do? Even after you've failed, when you remember your faith in Christ, when you remember what Jesus has done for you, when you remember, like Peter remembered on that beach, do you love me? When you remember the love that Jesus has for you, what are you supposed to do? Strengthen your brothers. Who are your brothers? The church. Isn't this powerful? The threshing floor is the same mountain That space, that threshing floor of Onan, the Jebusite, was the same place where God called Abraham to offer Isaac on that mount in the region of Moriah. And in that moment, stopped Abraham and said, I will provide a ram for the sacrifice. In other words, this is the place that eventually became the temple mount. And across the way is where Jesus, where God provided Jesus, the significance of that a sacrifice that God would make for us through His Son, Jesus. By His death, we who should have been chaff, who should all have lived worthless lives, hollow shells, blown away by the wind, or burned with fire, have instead found grace. We've instead found a fullness and a wholeness and a worth and a purpose I want to tell you this morning, Anchor Church, you are not chaff. You are not hollow straw. You are valuable grain. You are seed that God is sowing into this world. The foundation of the church is the sacrifice of Jesus, and no other foundation can be laid. He was crushed on the threshing floor so that we can live separated lives. The threshing floor is a place of salvation but also a place of sanctification and refinement. And so as we come to that space, that threshing floor, which for us today is Anchor Church, as we come together as this community, what is God doing? He brings us to salvation. He separates us for His purpose, but He is also refining us. And He is churning out and grinding out all the parts of your life that carry no value. And in that refining, producing something so worthwhile. As the gentle breeze of His Spirit constantly blows across the threshing floor, removing every bit of chaff from our lives, exposing the valuable grain, the substance of who we are in Christ. That's what we want for our lives. In this place, God said to David, Right, I've answered you by fire. Now build my temple here. Build the temple. That space, that floor of Onan became the space that God told David to build the temple. It's the place where people leave their empty pursuits behind and encounter the resurrected Christ as they surrender their lives to Him. And so the house that we get to build is a spiritual house. It's a spiritual house. People's lives are changed here. Onan means the center of cheer. That's the name of that's what his name means. The center of praise. Jebusite means to be downtrodden. Means to be crushed. We get to make church the center of praise in that space where Jesus was crushed for us. It's the threshing floor. The place where God does His work. I will do my miracles here, God says.
Final verse, 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. David and Ornan, both knowing that this was a spiritual house and a work of God, offered everything that they had. David saying, I will not bring my God a sacrifice that cost me nothing. And so, Anchor Church, on the basis of what God has given us in giving Jesus, we respond on the threshing floor by offering it all, by surrendering it all, and giving our worship. That is your reasonable, spiritual act of worship when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So much in this, so much depth, so much beauty. But can we make Anchor Church a house of worship, a house of praise, a house of separation? No matter what, how God refines us, it just brings more glory to Him. If you feel like a rough cut, uncut diamond, if you just feel like maybe some, some raw ore, in this space, God will refine you. And so it's worth being committed. It's worth going and being committed and being disciplined in our, in our attendance and in, in how we lean into the community because ultimately God is going to reveal the value of the substance of Christ in you and through you in the lives of others. Amen? Let's come to the threshing floor. Let's worship. Let's give our all. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we pray?